Well, this is our uh, final sermon in the Fruit of the Spirit series. For the past couple months, we've been looking at the different facets of the fruit of the Spirit and how the life and character of Christ is formed in us. And this week, we explore one final facet, self-control. So I want to begin our time this morning by sharing a brief story about my high school swimming days and then ask us all a question. I graduated from high school in 1995. I swam, I played water polo in high school. I enjoyed both of them, but I wasn't very good. Uh, But in 1992, the Olympic Games were held in Barcelona, Spain. Maybe you remember that, Olympics. Since I was a swimmer in high school, and swimming is one of the most televised and the marketed aspects of the Olympic Games, I was hooked. One of my favorite shirts that I owned back then was this blue Speedo t-shirt that was advertising the Olympic Games. And it had a close-up picture of a swimmer's determined face as he's gasping for air while doing the butterfly stroke. And the picture of his face was a thermal image. You know those ones where the hot spots are red and the cool spots are blue. It was really kind of technicolor. And surrounding the image of this swimmer's face in anguish was a circle of all the flags from countries around the world with the simple slogan, No Pain, No Spain. (laughs) I loved that shirt. You can actually get it on eBay if you wanted to. I checked to see if it was still around, and sure enough, it's still there. Uh, So somebody held on to it. But it it was a beautiful shirt. I loved it. But I loved more the glory that it pointed towards the emotion that it evoked, the struggle that it captured, and the prize it promised. But if I was honest with you, I hated the discipline that it demanded. And I think perhaps a lot of you can relate to that. Even as we reflect on the recent games in Rio, or if you've been watching the Paralympics that are currently taking place, you can relate all too well. The Pizza Hut commercial, whose slogan was, while the best athletes gather to compete, the rest of us gather to eat. (laughs) We like to watch glory from the stands, but we don't really want to make the sacrifices required to be an Olympic athlete. And that leads me to ask my question, what was God's purpose for the Olympic Games in Rio? What was God's purpose for the Olympic Games in Rio? Is it just for us to gather to eat or feel bad that we aren't in better shape? I don't think so. I think there is a a deeper magic at work. In preparing for this sermon, I was reading a message that a pastor gave back in 1992 during the Barcelona Games. And he asked the same question, which provoked me to, to do the same. What was God's purpose for the Olympic Games in Barcelona? And it got me thinking, because if I was honest with you, the Olympics move me to tears. As my wife will attest, I am not a big fan of sports. But when we brought the TV up from the basement and watched a lot of Olympics last month, my kids would often look over at me and I would be in tears. Why is that? Is that just emotional nonsense? Is it just marketing, playing with my emotions? Perhaps that's part of it. But God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. No plan of his can be thwarted. It wasn't a surprise when the Olympic Games began in 776 B.C. or when Theodosius banned them in 339 A.D. 
It wasn't a surprise when they started up again in the 19th century and continue to this day. And for some sovereign reason, Paul makes numerous references to these Olympic or these Hellenic games as he considers the Christian's life of faith. And so I ask us all again, what was God's purpose for the Olympic games in Rio? What is it about seeing the human body so disciplined, so controlled, so pushed to physical, mental, and emotional limits that it provokes and evokes such emotion and glory inside of us? Well, let's consider that as we open God's word together this morning. Our passage, springboarding from Galatians 5, is Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So turn there if you would. I'm going to read Galatians 5 for us, and then I will join you in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So this is Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, speaking on the fruit of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 23 and read through chapter 10, verse 13. So 1 Corinthians 9, 23. Paul speaking. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed to the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that allows us to understand your word. God, I ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us even now, that you'd guard us, you'd keep us from the evil one that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And as we hear your word, Lord, that we would do your word, that we'd be changed by your word. Lord, we thank you for this time. Bless us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, I have two main points for my sermon this morning. Point number one is the race. Point number two, governed by grace. And then I'll close with two short applications. So first, race. In order to really understand self-control and the context for the Christian, we need to look at the race we are running. What I want to avoid at all costs this morning is for you to simply hear that you need to be more self-controlled. Stop doing this and start doing that. I was reminded in discussing this sermon during a staff meeting of the classic Bob Newhart counseling skit that perhaps you've seen on YouTube. A woman comes in Dr. Switzer's counseling office, a.k.a. Bob Newhart, with all of her struggles and her problems. She's seeking help and counsel. He listens to her share her fears and struggles and then informs her that his method of counseling is a unique approach. He wants to be sure that she's okay with it. After she agrees, he kind of hems and haws, and then he tells her quite loudly and matter-of-factly, Stop it! And he repeats this over and over again. Despite her rebuttals, her shock, her tears, stop it! Now, it is no doubt comical, but if we aren't careful, we can simply view self-control in a similar fashion. Just stop it. But self-control is a facet of the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of Severin, but the fruit of Bob, or the fruit of Jill. So self-control simply can't be will worship or self-made religion or just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It has got to be something that is derived and sustained by the Spirit of God. So with that disclaimer and qualifier, let's examine God's word this morning in this race that Paul the Apostle is running, and this race that he calls us to run as well. Well, Paul's zeal, no doubt, as we see, is Olympic. As we read about his life and his missionary fervor, we find ourselves inspired, provoked. He is a fervent disciple of Jesus. He wants to be disciplined. He wants to be trained. He wants to be constrained by the resurrected Christ. He had been powerfully confronted and converted by our risen Lord Jesus amidst his own hell-bent mission to crush Christians. And now, by God's grace, his mission has drastically changed. Once hell-bent, now he's heaven-bent to see Christ's kingdom spread across the globe. So what is this race that Paul is running? Well, to answer that, let's listen in on another speech Paul makes in the book of Acts. It is towards the end of his missionary ventures. He's about to board the ship for Jerusalem, and he's saying his final goodbyes to the Ephesian elders, recognizing that troubles await him, and he won't likely see them again. And in chapter 20, verse 24, he makes this powerful statement. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish the course, finish my course, and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And we're going to hear a similar refrain in our text this morning to the church in Corinth. So here in this letter to Corinth, to provide a little context... Paul's apostolic call is being questioned, it's being criticized. And he's making his defense that his faith in his mission is genuine. As a minister of the gospel, he has a right to earn his living from the gospel. A farmer should be able to enjoy the fruit of the harvest. A soldier in war shouldn't have to pay for his own expense. And yet, despite this right, Paul says that he has refrained from taking advantage of that right. And he declares in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
Though free in Christ, he makes himself a slave, a servant of all for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of winning more souls, seeing more people saved. He recognized that the way he exerts himself, the way he refrains from certain rights, the way he orders his affections, the way he keeps his eye on the prize are all instrumental and crucial towards the salvation of those to whom he is ministering. But isn't God sovereign? Won't God save who he saves? He knows who's elect and who's predestined for salvation. So why, why Paul, all this talk about human effort and human responsibility? Well, God's sovereignty has means. We live in real space and time. Our lives, our choices matter. The way you and I run this race of faith has eternal significance. As Paul said in verse 22, I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. You know, it reminds me of this famous Moravian missionary story of John Leonard Dober or Dober and David Nitschman. Maybe you've heard of it before. They basically sold themselves into slavery to bring the gospel to the West Indies. And as they were on the ship leaving Europe and heading to the West Indies, amidst many people's cries and, why are you doing this? Why are you selling yourselves into slavery? As the space between the shore and the ship widened, one of the brothers raised their arm and cried out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And I think Paul is making that similar refrain. His race is to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So question, is that your race? Do you see the goal and purpose of your life to testify to the gospel of God's grace? Unfortunately, when we study the scriptures and study the lives of the saints, and specifically Paul today, we can make a shrine to Paul. Paul becomes a, a demigod of sorts. We see ourselves as somehow incapable, unable to run our own race with similar fervor and zeal. Or perhaps, God forbid, we think it's unnecessary for us to be so zealous and fervent. Oh, that's Paul. He's one of those Olympic Christians. I could never run a race like that. Well, that's a lie. How you run your race has eternal significance. Perhaps you're a business owner, a manager, a mechanic, an electrician, stay-at-home mom, a computer whiz, a student, a pastor, an evangelist, a social worker, a truck driver, a construction worker. Perhaps you feel like you've run your race. You're retired. Brothers and sisters, the track and the terrain and the talents, they'll all vary in our own lives. Yet every one of us in our God-given spheres of influence have a race to run. The same race as Paul, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And Paul charges the church in Corinth, run so that you may obtain the prize. And I make that similar charge to us this morning. Run so that you may obtain the prize. Point number two, governed by grace. 
So that's our race, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. How do we run in such a way to win the prize? Well, let's go back to our text, verse 24. Listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. As Christians filled with the Spirit of God, we must exercise self-control and discipline in our bodies in order to win the prize. Well, let's look at that word in verse 24, self-control. The Greek word here in verse 24 is the same as that found in Galatians 5.23, egokratia, which basically means ego or ego, self, kratia, command. So self-command. And although we can put baggage and view self-control as binding or inhibiting, it's actually the exact opposite. Self-control is liberating. When I taught high school history, I'd often tell my students, my wily students who really had a hard time controlling themselves, If you don't learn to control yourself, someone else will control you. People get locked up behind bars because they haven't learned to control themselves. If you are out of control, you are not free. You are a slave to some other force. So to have self-control, to be able to command yourself, it's truly liberating. And so Paul uses these Olympic, these Hellenic games to flesh out what this self-control is. So we ask the question, how can we, how can I exercise more self-command and self-control in our lives? How do we do it? Well, in the Roman world, one of the ways that self-control was exercised was simply mind over emotions. Perhaps it reminds you of Bob Newhart's counseling. Just stop it. But you know, I, I feel. Just stop it. Don't listen to your emotions. Just put your emotions in their place and stop it. Is that what Paul intends? Is Christianity simply a new version of Roman Stoicism? Or do we master self-control like the medieval ascetics? View this physical world as evil. Do we wind our lives up so tight with loveless, legalistic restraints? Do we literally beat our body, constantly deny our body basic earthly desires? Taking this passage out of context and outside of the whole counsel of Scripture, many have fallen prey to this ascetic view. Countless within the monastic orders aspire to this sort of denial of the flesh, the literal beating of the body, self-flagellation. But Paul specifically addresses asceticism in his letter to the church in Colossae. Let me read that for you in chapter 2. This is not the way to be self-controlled. Paul says this, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that are all destined to perish with use according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. 
So if self-control isn't exercised or achieved by burying our emotions, by destroying our bodies, by living by the letter of the law, what is it? Well, let's consider again the Olympians. How do they exercise such self-control and discipline? How do they push their bodies to such limits and endure such physical pain? Well, their lives are governed, dominated, captivated by a quest for athletic glory. This singular focus enables them to make incredible sacrifices and endure profound pain. Other desires get trumped by that desire for athletic glory. The desire for sleep, the desire to eat, whatever you want, the desire for leisure, the desire for these ordinary desires, nothing wrong with them, but all of these desires get trumped, surpassed by that greater desire for athletic glory. And Paul compares this singular focus to, of the Olympic athletes with the Christian's call to run the race of faith. Our lives, too, must be governed, dominated, captivated by a quest for God's glory. Our lives must be governed by grace. All other desires must be subservient to our first love. And as we rightly order our loves, we will become a more and more self-controlled person. When the desire for other things like physical comfort or food or sex or leisure or success or family seek to replace our first love, our simple and pure devotion to Christ, it is only the grace of God that will empower us to resist those temptations and not fall into sin. Augustine said that all sin is disordered love. So as we continue reading our text this morning, we'll see how our disordered loves, our disordered desires can lead us into temptation and potentially cause us to fall, be overthrown, disqualified. Continue reading with me in chapter 10 as Paul gives us an example of what not to desire and how not to run. Reading verse 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul takes us back to the story of Israel's exodus. The Israelites had been delivered out of Egypt by grace. They had been gathered together. They were baptized in the Red Sea. They ate manna from heaven. They drank water from the rock. And this is striking imagery. Paul is making direct correlation between Israel and the church. He references the two sacraments, the two ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. Our fathers all passed through the sea and all were baptized. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. In chapter 11, Paul is going to be specifically talking about communion. Paul is trying to help the church in Corinth see that just because you're the church, even though you got baptism and communion, even though you do all these things, be careful lest you fall. For these things don't ultimately reveal where your heart is. Read verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, 
God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. How were they overthrown in the wilderness? Read verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. They were overthrown in the wilderness because they desired evil. They desired evil. But this is Israel. They are supposed to be God's chosen people. God delivered them, and yet despite all of God's deliverance, they aren't content. Instead of heeding God's command, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Instead of heeding Moses' cry, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Instead of God being their supreme love, instead of being governed by grace, they became slaves to their gross appetites and their demonic delusions. Continue reading verses 7 through 10. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These are heavy words. They became idolaters, sexually immoral, putting God to the test grumbling, complaining against God, and so they were disqualified. They were destroyed. They didn't make it into the promised land. This is serious. The way we run the race of faith has eternal significance. Now, this isn't to make a Christian doubt their salvation or the perseverance of the saints, but to simply affirm that faith without works is dead. As I heard a pastor years ago say, grace works. Listen to Paul's loving exhortation of the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In order to run this race well, to be truly self-controlled, our lives must be governed by grace. Christ must be our treasure, our greatest desire, and our greatest delight. Christian, remember... Remember, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. God has taken out your heart of stone, given you a new heart that delights in God. The reason you pray, the reason you read your Bible, the reason you gather with God's people, the reason you seek to love God and love your neighbor is because God has changed your desires. He's given you new affections. He has reordered, he has rightly ordered your loves Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what it means to be a Christian. You're not the same person as you were when you were born. You've been born again. You've been born from above. You're no longer a slave to sin. 
You're a slave to righteousness. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. And yet, and yet, our struggle with sin is real. You and I still live in this body that is selfish, riddled with sin. There is this principle of evil that indwells every one of us. Sounds spooky and scary, but it's the truth. Don't make the mistake of thinking that all of your worst problems are outside of you or circumstantial. No doubt the world and the devil are real, but so is the flesh. There is a principle of sin in your members that you must learn to master, that I must learn to master. You know those feelings when rage or anger or lust or envy begin to well up within you. It's not coming from outside of you. It's not because there's a cute girl or your kids are misbehaving. It's because there is sin inside of us. We must learn to master it. You must learn to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to let the Spirit of God, the grace of God govern you, to have dominion over our appetites, our affections, our attitudes, our actions. We must be governed by grace in order to be truly free. So practically, what do you do as a Christian who is really struggling with self-control? in a certain area of your life, struggling to surrender and allow the grace of God to govern. What do you do? Well, we get two very practical things from our text. Look at verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So first, God's word The Exodus example was written down for our instruction, our warning, our admonition. God's word has been given to us to instruct us, to train us. So how important is it for you to spend time reading God's word? If you lack self-control, then prayerfully change your habits. Ask God to reshape your affections by reading your Bible. You will grow to love what you do. You will grow to love what you do. Your habits inform your affections. The more you do something, the more you will desire it. The more you read God's word, the more the grace of God will govern your life. Secondly, God's people. Paul told the church in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Well, that implies that they were unaware. And so he needed to tell them. So you and I all have blind spots, places in our lives, pitfalls, temptations that we are totally unaware. So surround yourself with people that will listen to you, people that you can submit to, people that you can entrust your soul to because we can't run this race alone. We cannot run this race alone. So self-control only comes as we are governed by God's grace, as we rightly order our loves, submitting to Christ's lordship, running our race, doing it all for the sake of the gospel to testify to the gospel of God's grace. It is all of grace This is not about will worship. 
This is not about yelling at yourself or someone else to stop it or feeling miserable because you feel like you can't stop it. Listen to John Piper's words here. Life is not a field for demonstrating the force of our will to make good choices. It is a field for showing how the beauty of Christ takes us captive and constrains us to choose and run for his glory. Grace is not nullified by the way we run, but grace is verified by the way we run. Paul's running did not nullify the purpose of grace. It verified the power of grace. If you're a Christian, God's powerful grace is at work in your life. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. You have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is always seeking to glorify Christ and to conform you and I into the image of Christ, into the character of Christ. Let me read a final passage. It's actually our benediction a passage that Matthew and I were discussing during our staff meeting, and it just beautifully captures how this call to live a self-controlled life begins and ends with grace. It begins with grace, and it culminates in grace. This is Titus 2. You can just read it on your, on your um, worship guide. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May that be us, church. May the grace of God so govern our lives that we are self-controlled people who have disciplined our bodies and may run hard for Jesus Christ, zealous for good works, zealous to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Let me close with two applications and we'll be done. Pain and mission. First, pain. Do you have a theology of pain? Do you have a theology of pain? What sort of relationship do you have with pain? Are trials obstacles or opportunities? Is conflict something you avoid or something you rise above and overcome? We live in a pretty soft age. Any pain we want to quickly medicate, any tension or potential threats we want to quickly run away from or put up fences to protect us. Any physical discomfort, we say no thank you. Any sacrifice or denial, why bother? We live in a world of Walmarts, Costcos, and Amazon. It's all there for the taking. Do you have a theology of pain? a theology of discomfort. So what was God's purpose for the Olympic Games in Rio? No doubt there were many. But I think one of them is to teach us a theology of pain. No pain, no Spain. Jesus promised that in this world we would have trouble. And we see that in our verse here, final verses here, 12 and 13 in 1 Corinthians. So we'll read these last two verses. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when trials come, how will you respond? Will you push through the pain, governed by God's grace, 
for that glory, that prize that awaits those who persevere? As Paul told the Philippians, let us live up to what we've already attained. It's ours. Christ has secured it for us through his life, his death, his resurrection. We have nothing to fear. So I wonder if those tears that I cried when I was watching the Olympic Games in Rio was really a fire being kindled and stirred in my bones to not waste my life, but to push through the pain, to embrace the reality that momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. I think that was one purpose God had for the Olympic Games. Second mission. When Paul thought of self-control, I don't think he was primarily occupied with not eating too much ice cream, trimming his waistline, or increasing his PR for the 100-yard dash. Think of the pain that Paul endured. Imprisonments, beatings, lashings, shipwrecked, hungry, thirsty, cold, sleepless nights, betrayal, loneliness, anxiety for the church. And yet his race was to testify to the gospel and God's grace. And do you remember how far Paul wanted to take his message? Do you remember the end of his letter to the Romans? He hopes to go to Rome and then press on to where? Spain. I hope to see you in passing, he says, as I go to Spain. Now, we don't know if he made it to Spain or not. Church father Clement, in his letter to the Corinthians, seems to allude to the fact that Paul made it to Spain by saying that, quote, he made it to the extreme limit of the West. You know, geography, the Iberian Peninsula, Spain is the extreme limits of the West, the Mediterranean world. So imagine with me if you would. We're almost done. Paul has made it to Rome. And he feels the call and the burden to press on to Spain. But he's tired. He doesn't want to go. He knows the pain that most likely awaits him, the hostility from those who hate God. His body's weary. His mind is tired. His heart, perhaps, heavy, lonely. But then God's word comes to mind. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So Paul packed his meager belongings, silencing the complaints, the cries, the groanings of his weary mind and body. And once again, he fixed his eyes on Jesus. And despite the pain, he pressed on with his mission, his race, to testify to the gospel of God's grace in Spain. Brothers and sisters, self-control is for such a holy endeavor. Are you willing to beat your body and make it your slave for the sake of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth? Am I willing to leave my securities and comforts for the sake of making the name of Jesus treasured around the world? If not, then like Paul, 
I need to once again look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Press on, brothers and sisters. Press on. You are in holy company. Christ our King has gone before us, and he will come again with an imperishable prize, a crown of righteousness, and together we will enjoy our gracious glorious God and King forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We thank you that even now he's making intercession for us. We thank you that he has prepared this table for us to remind us that his body was broken and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Help us to feast upon him today, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us, Lord, to run the race that you've called us to run, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Help us to be a self-controlled people governed by your grace, governed by our supreme love to love you, God, to know you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. And all God's people said.